When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have to do something. Welcome to PBN. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter.com or Blue Sky at Braden Gall. I'm Jamie Holland. Scroll down. Give us five stars. Don't be a hater. Uh, in studio, joining us from the Tennessean, David Plazas. Good to have you here. We really appreciate it. Thank you for coming into the studio, my man. Yeah, thanks so much, Bridget and Jamie. Looking forward to it. We have a huge show planned, a ton of topics to get to from the Metro. We got fairgrounds. We got housing. We got transit. We got vouchers. We got Nazis. We got media talk. We've got a whole lot of stuff to get to. The former president was in town last week, so we'll get to what took place there. So a ton of things to discuss uh, on the show today. Of course, we have also, Jamie, a special announcement coming up in just a few minutes for all you history buffs out there and all you you folks who like to read. We've got an announcement coming up. Vandy. <laughs> anchor, anchor down uh of course before we do any of that david uh and i'm gonna make jamie do this you don't have to do this but pod bless nashville pbn the show is brought to you by eighth and roast that is correct eighth and roast over on that's right eighth avenue also on charlotte that's a good thing that first one being on eighth <laughs> avenue was critical to the mission that's true uh and all the beans ethically sourced you can get them at grocery stores all over the city make sure you go check out eighth and roast of course we will be at the charlotte location the first tuesday of every month so that's coming up here pretty soon so i think in uh, in a, about a week and a half we'll be out there again want to see you guys out there so please come out uh, in real life gathering face to face it's a wonderful wonderful thing uh david i know you're a big fan of getting out into the community and, and visiting with people so uh please come hang out eighth and roast uh eight o'clock first tuesday of every month and then check out all the other locations vanderbilt airport and 8th avenue and the beans all across the city all right it's, it's on the bus line Braden. that's true well we'll get into transit in do, just a second do people know what transit is or do they know what traffic is oh stop it traffic i'm not taking the bait on that okay one. there's a whole lot of stuff to get to going on in the city and the state right now so well um, i think some folks post october 7 realized that nazis were anti-jew so it, I'm not taking your bait. <laughs> it became a point of something that, regardless of your political team, we could all agree. To quote our great junior senator, I am opposed to all violence <laughs> and any groups that can commit violence towards other people. Um, all right. First it seemed all, like we were okay with it until all of a sudden October 7, and now everybody's against it. Well, David, first of all, before we get into that, because we are going to talk about that, but first of all, tell everybody where they can get to you. Uh, where you want people to follow you. Jamie may not want people to follow him on Twitter, but uh, where would you like uh, people to get to you? Where can they get to you? And of course, obviously, Tennessean.com. You got the podcast as well, Tennessee Voices. So where can you? Where can people find you? Yeah, so uh, David Plazas, my name on X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. Sorry, Braden, he's on the team. <laughs> Sorry, David. Sorry. I, 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 welcome I, to the team. I am not on Blue Sky. I heard, Jamie, that nobody's there. At least that was your review. So I've, I've been given an invitation it's, code, but I have not accepted it. There's too much social media right now to do. It's, it's open. To the, it's free to the public you don't need the invite code anymore but it's wonderful because no one is there <laughs> that's what makes it fun that's why i enjoy it it's um, no longer elitist it's com allowed the commoners to come I, in i suppose i'll send you a code though if you want one big guy Pass. okay you've written a lot of stuff about these topics you've written about transit you've written about housing and metro codes you've written about a lot of the stuff that we're going to discuss today on the show but I, I thought we would get started with the fairgrounds stuff that's going on of course the metro charter the group the you know the fairground preservation group They've put forth some plans, essentially, do we want affordable housing or do we want racing? 
at the fairgrounds. And I'll let you guys, uh, Jamie, I'll let you dive into the specifics of the actual process here. But David, do you get a sense when people, when you talk to folks or you read comments or you interact with your audience, do you, do you get a sense of what people actually want in that area of town? Like, do they, do they want racing? Do they want traffic? Do they want more things to do? There's a big musical element to helping the musicians community in this, this thing. Like just in general, stepping back from all the politics, do you have a sense of what people, what Nashville actually wants? So my reporting over the last several years have focused on growth and change and that dichotomy and also the challenge between it. That is, people want growth when it benefits them. And when it doesn't, be it traffic or otherwise, that uh, becomes an enemy, so to speak. So when we talk about yimbyism or nimbyism, when we talk about uh, neighborhoods wanting to preserve the so-called character of the neighborhoods, it's about protecting a way of life, protecting character. And so as I've covered the, the fairgrounds issue, I remember uh, when T-Bone Burnett was trying to, to get that, uh, that new de- that development during the Barry administration several years ago. At Fort Negley. Yeah, at Fort Negley, yeah. And, uh, and, and essentially it was this whole notion of, well, we're going to have a makerspace and affordable housing. And of course, that, that didn't go anywhere. You know, the, the main... Reason, if I recall correctly, was because they found remains underneath uh, the old baseball stadium. Uh, Of slaves that were fighting for the North. Exactly. And and so what I see with the fairground situation is one you've had, when I first arrived in 2014, uh, you did not have soccer. You had a flea market. You had an area that looked, you know, a little bit run down, perhaps. Uh, You know, had not not a lot of care for a long time. That was a big bone bone of contention. Um, George Grun from Grun Guitars is a big fairgrounds fan, and he and I have talked over the years about that, and he was very upset after the uh, the referendum that, that you led, Jamie, um, back in 2011, that even though you are supposed to preserve these things, you really weren't investing in the maintenance. And so when I came, I was like, wow, this is really interesting, public land. And so I think this whole notion of who gets to own these particular spaces, who gets to own the dog park on one side, who gets to own the soccer stadium, who gets to own... And if you remember during COVID, a lot of those places, I had just been at, uh, at a home and garden show just a few days before the emergence of COVID. This was in March of 2020. And after that, those beautiful new little houses became shelters for um, unhoused individuals. And so it completely changed. And what is the purpose? What is the public purpose? Now, post-pandemic era, you know, we're in a situation where who gets to own what? I'll, I'll, I'll finish with this quick anecdote that the weekend that Taylor Swift was in town last year in May of 2023, I was at a soccer stadium at Jewett's Park. And I uh, deliberately chose to take a lift an hour and a half before because of surge pricing and because of traffic. And when I, I, I might have done the exact same thing <laughs> as you that night. <laughs> well, you know, when I when I left, I'm glad I did. There's a little bar called Tracks, which is uh, nearby Chestnut Hill area, and walked there, waited an hour and a half because traffic was bumper to bumper. That's one of the growth consequences that we're seeing that people are really, really angry about. Jamie, do you want to help explain the process here? It reminds me that hiring a lawyer is like buying a parachute. When you realize you should have paid more, it's probably too late. But Section 1903 of the Charter says in very plain language, the architect of the plan to amend the Charter, quote, shall file the petition with the Metropolitan Clerk. Because they didn't follow that simple language, they just filed a letter written by a lawyer and I would say another astroturfer, but it doesn't have a petition. So when the Charter Review Commission met last week on Thursday, they kicked it because it was not in the proper form. It's kind of like, you know, in a race, somebody took out early before the flag dropped or the green green light dropped. And Do it again. False start. False start. And they got to come back on March 11th. So that's the process part of this that was incorrect. I still, and, and I, you know, look, 
it feels utterly to you already mentioned the dog park like there's already a giant park there a, a very large park uh, i play soccer on it frequently with with friends there's affordable housing that is supposed to be coming into that 10 acre parcel that was so hotly debated um, it seems pretty transparent that we have people who want to build a 30,000 seat racetrack next to a 30,000 seat soccer stadium at odds with each other because it's direct competition even if those going to racetracks may not be the same folks going to soccer games. It's competition for the entertainment dollar. Yeah, it's, it is what it is. And I, to me, it feels very transparent. Now, in, in every story, both Axios and the banner have said, look, John Ingram and Nashville SC is not involved in this at all. I, I, I don't know. I think uh, it, it seems pretty transparent to me. But again, I want to know the coalition, Jamie, that you put together that saved the fairgrounds in 2011. I, I just am curious, and you sort of, David, pointed to the tensions that are at play here. I just want to know like what I know what I like personally. I like racing. Racing is cool. I'm not a musician. I'm not going to be down there rehearsing. Do I know that we need affordable housing and rehearsal space for musicians in the city? Absolutely. I, I don't live there. So traffic's not a factor for me, but I would go to races and I know short track racing is cool for NASCAR fans. If, if what does the city actually want, if the architects support for affordable housing was authentic and genuine, I would have heard their support for the bill sponsored by Quinn Evans Siegel and Rollin Horton. Instead, this is a cheap political ploy to win the hearts and minds of possible voters. I'm not ready to talk about it in detail because they haven't even got to first base yet because of this footfall that they made out of the gate. It's multiple sports metaphors at once. I like that. I'm I'm trying here, Brad. If I can get one more sports ball in here, that's called a trifecta. There you go. Got horse racing in there. <laughs> well, you know, this is a microcosm for the conversation in Nashville as a whole. And what I mean by that is, is I came in here naively 10 years ago thinking, oh, yeah, we all want to get along. We all want to live in this. But we have a history, a long history. And it also happened to my old, my, my native place of Chicago, where people don't want to live next to people who aren't like them, you know, ethnically, racially. Uh, you know, uh, financially, and unfortunately, we're seeing that again and again when it comes to the preservation conservation. You, you can have soccer here, but you can't have racing. And racing, historically, was for a, a, a long-time native Nashvillian. Uh, and uh, I remember talking to Bill Freeman about this many years ago because he was a big booster of that. And the whole question is, can you coexist? This is our big problem today in Nashville and cities across America. It's not just a Nashville issue. Uh, we just have these growing pains right now because we are considered the hottest city in America. Urban Land Institute named us a superstar city. I think this might be the second or third year in a row. And so the real estate market is so hot. One thing that the ULI presented just a few weeks ago when Mayor O'Connell was speaking at this event uh, was, was this dichotomy. We are number one when it comes to real estate growth. We are number 20 when it comes to housing supply. Uh, whereas if you compare a city like Atlanta, which is number four and four in both a real estate um, a, a boom and, and also the housing supply. So you have a balance. We do not have a balance here. Yeah. And that's indicative right now of the problems that are going on in the fairgrounds. And I, I think what ordinary folks don't realize is that there's a lot of conversation with various departments of the government and not only national investment, but now international investment in getting land, multifamily, high rise, towers downtown. You know, I don't know what the Crane Watch says today, but I'd say it's north of 40. Like that's not slowing down. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And as we look at, uh, I was just having a conversation earlier today with a 
uh, a doctoral student who's studying affordable housing in Nashville, and we were talking a, lot, a little bit about the difference between inclusionary zoning, which was passed and later uh, preempted by the state uh, back in 2018, and also the pilot program, the payment in lieu of taxes, and how, on the one hand, that does create an incentive for developers, but it takes a long time to create that type of housing, and the people who need it now are not benefiting. It, I, I want This is an unanswerable question, so maybe hopefully a fun one for a conversation. Do, do you think that that sense of living around different folks, do you get a sense that that is evolving at all? The three of us in particular live in extremely diverse areas by choice. And I, I'm curious if you think young people look at it that way. Are we, are we more uh, polarized as an over, overused term, calcified into our sort of existences? Do you think that's changing at all? Uh, you know, one thing I'll address is it's changing to a degree, I think, with exposure, media exposure, in-person exposure, but we're also facing a tremendous backlash right now, uh, you know, with regard to DEI, so-called wokeness, all these things that are calling into question who is qualified to be in the arena to say what, to have what position, to live in what neighborhood. I live in the Salem Town neighborhood. I live a block away from the mayor. And when I moved in 2014, I was renting the first year, bought the next year. I could not afford to live in my neighborhood today. Yeah. You know, it's become out of reach. And um, the National Scene recently did a story related to neighborhood associations. And uh, the reality is it's not reflective of the community that was once there that was predominantly black. Today it is a predominantly white, uh, a predominantly affluent neighborhood um, but it is a very much an urban neighborhood. And if we look at the history, and I think we need more history lessons. I, I just wrote a piece recently because of the Nazis coming to um, march in Nashville about that. Yeah, we need to condemn this. But number two, we also need to repeal these laws that you know, ban divisive concepts. You know, how can we learn about history if we don't know what is divisive, if we don't know what has harmed us? And if we just talk about the I-40 going through Jefferson Street in the abstract or just at museum events rather than in school— how are we going to build upon that and do better? We had a guest last week say he did not learn about the I-40 interstate in his neighborhood in his school. Mm. Yeah, Jerome Moore, right? Jerome said yeah. that exact thing just last week on the show. Well, the point about not being able to afford to live here, I share that feeling. But what does that make you think about our overall community who you've been communicating with for the past 10 years today? How does that land with you? It's, it's tough because um, the question is, when I started here, the, the initial back breakdown of homeowners and renters was about 55, 45, 55% homeowners. I think we've started to switch. We're going to moving toward the direction of Dallas, which is 60, 40. And the reason I put it into a homeownership renter is because it, it makes up who is investing in Nashville in the long term. And I think we have a combination of people. And again, some of this is by reporting, some of this is statistics, some of this is anecdotal, where you have people who are going to come in and out because, you know, Nashville is a destination, is the next city to get to Atlanta or to New York or Los Angeles or wherever. Um, but at the same time, I think we're trying to trying to figure out who we are. You know, what is our identity? You know, can I, as someone who is from Chicago, who lived in Florida for 14 years, who has lived in Nashville for 10 consider myself a Nashvillian. I, I hope I at least want to be proud of living here. I, I, I invest in my neighborhood. I care about it. I care about the city. And um, and even my reporting, I, I uh, got a little of a, a pushback a few years ago when I criticized the city for not being progressive. So you say that you're progressive, but your policies don't lend themselves to being progressive when it comes to actually doing things that that matter to um, the income of people. Uh, the conversation I had with the doctoral student earlier today, he asked me about wage disparities. And I said, that's the biggest thing that, you know, Richard Florida, who's an urbanologist out of the University of Toronto, had talked about that back in 2017 in his book, The New Urban Crisis. It's all about we need to have inclusive prosperity. 
the Brookings Institution sent somebody, their president, down a few years ago. The National Chamber hosted her where they talked about inclusive prosperity. COVID happened, and we're not having that conversation anymore. And yet we need it more than ever. Um, there's two stats. When I did a series, a, a long-term series, of the cost of, of growth and change in Nashville back in 2017, that always stuck in my mind. And that is during a decade period, rents had gone up by 57% and wages had gone up by 7%. And that doesn't work. That delta simply doesn't work for most people who are here. As a transplant, it worked for me because I was coming from somewhere else, coming with a higher salary than, uh, than the median and could at that time afford a house. Um, but, you know, it is changing things. It's changing the way that people can hire th- uh, uh, people. It's changing, you know, the conversation about do we do hybrid still? Do we, you know, we just uh, reported a story in the Tennessee and my, my colleague Sandy Massa about uh, commercial real estate. I think a fifth of, of commercial real estate is, is, is not filled currently. And so there's this huge conversation of can you convert it into apartments? And the answer is not easily. It can be done, but it's a very tough process. And there's some work being done on one in Madison. The downtown ones take some time. So it's a little bit of a departure from your initial question, but we're having a huge identity crisis here in Nashville. Who are we? What do we represent? And even thinking about the history of Nashville, we had several mayors for years who were not from Nashville, you know, like Bill Purcell or Carl Dean or Megan Barry. And we kind of did a, re, you know, a reversal. You know, now the last three mayors have all been Nashville natives, you know, Briley Cooper and, and O'Connell. And, um, and I think one thing that the, that the mayor, Mayor O'Connell, has said, and I think in some ways the past mayor has also said, is that this needs to be a place that everyone can live in and can benefit from. That whole question of how do you do it is different. You know, what are the, the, the takeaways? You know, you talked uh, with Jerome about the Metro Arts Commission. Who gets to control the money? Who gets to t- who gets to control the resources? And where do they go? Is it enough to be performative? But what policies are you going to make so you can incent someone to stay in the long term, to invest in the long term? And that, that's one thing I, I I think about a lot with where I live, is that we are supposed to get a bridge, you know, with the Oracle Project, pedestrian bridge. It's exciting in some ways, but terrifying in other ways, in the sense that you're suddenly creating a neighborhood that is, you know, historically would be displaced of people who are saying, we're going to cash in, you know, what, what we can, because we need to go elsewhere. We're going to get a lot of money for this. We can't afford the taxes on this. And, you know, these people can, who are coming in with six figure salaries, which is, which is great, but you right. can't sustain a city alone on six figure salary people. I'm going to dovetail back to the fairgrounds 2014. There's no Mr. Groon talking about lack of investments because Carl Dean, once he lost that referendum and was reelected on the same ballot, the fairgrounds became Siberia. He, he did not do anything other than the bare minimum. In fact, made the fairgrounds and the farmer's market folks come back every quarter for supplemental budget funding because he, he was trying to strangle it to death and it survived despite those efforts. And now there's been some reinvestment come along from different operators, but still not to the level to where you would if you had a child that you'd want to go and take your child and use the facilities like the restroom and things like that, it's, you know, not even ADA compliant. It's the, the city's ripe for an ADA complaint right now mm-hmm. based on the decrepit conditions of that facility. Even our sidewalks. I mean, that's another thing. I remember a few years ago, uh, Mayor Barry, when she was in office, said uh, jocularly at, at an event for the downtown partnership that I'm going to you know, personally remove all these electric poles, those utility poles from the sidewalks because they are an obstruction to people who have mobility issues. Um, you know, and the scooter situation is another one too, that, that makes, I, I had an employee years ago, a, a colleague who, uh, is, is, is blind. And, you know, I always thought about him when it came to not being able to navigate 
those obstructions. And, and, you know, the question is that that's not right. You know, we, we have to create the city. One thing, you know, we haven't talked about transit yet, but the oh, one, it's one, coming. <laughs> well, well I'll, I'll hold on. Hold on. Until well, you're no, ready. Your, no, your sidewalk was a perfect segue actually right into transit. And, I, and I'm, well, I, we used to be under a DOJ consent decree because our sidewalks, our sidewalks were not constructed in a com- ADA compliant way, AKA they didn't have any ramps. Mm-hmm. And so there were some on Cleveland street and East Nashville, and they had a certain percentage of our sidewalk budget allocation went into ADA compliance as opposed to new construction because of consent decree. So the, the TAC and the CAC, which is the community advisory committee and the transit advisory committee are working together. Those are the two committees that Mayor O'Connell described in his press conference. They've been meeting currently. And I think one of the things I said last week uh, on the show was that I think folks are going to be fairly underwhelmed. And you, you coming from a city that has uh, extraordinary public transportation in Chicago. Uh, by the way, I said transit, it's technical advisory committee. So I correct myself there. E me. I, I have said all along that I will be okay with these small incremental steps using improving strategies of okay. work. I'm okay with that being small, especially with the political considerations of this particular transit referendum uh, and the timeline that we're working with here. They, they've a bunch of quotes came out from a bunch of folks that were in that meeting. And the only thing that I have cared about is, is the thing that we're doing now going to allow us to do more later. And if that is sidewalks now, if that's light signals now, if that's safety now, and then we get to dedicated bus lanes and then dedicated bus lanes then allow us to get to rail, I I think that's ultimately, I'm okay with understanding that that's what the process is going to take. It sounds like those those committees are meeting right now, they're they're doing their jobs, but uh, ultimately light rail was a big point of conversation last week with those committees. I, I just don't think I don't think light rail is a winning topic right now, but can we build dedicated bus lanes that are convertible into rail in the future? And I've been told by some transit experts that that absolutely is possible. So, um, and I know you've written a little bit about the transit stuff, your, your opinions on the scope of the project and how that will influence uh, its ability well, to pass. Well, there's a difference between the engineering reality and the political reality, because when I think about, you know, can you do it? Certainly, you know, with enough money and enough investment, uh, but there's two things that are that are different from Chicago and here. It doesn't make it better. It just makes it different. And number one is the tax structure. There are very high taxes in Chicago. There's an income tax. There's other methods to fund these kinds of programs. We do not have an income tax in Tennessee. Uh, it's been banned by the Constitution back in 2014, just a few weeks before I arrived here. Uh, and, and then you have just the issue of frequency and ridership. That is, when I grew up in Chicago, I could rely on a bus coming every nine minutes to pick me up to my stop, and so it was efficient. And I had the perception, because I rode from the time I was a little boy, that it was safe. Um, if Looking at the various studies that I've read over the years in the South, for many historic reasons, the perception has been that you don't take the bus if you can afford a car. And if you, that's the only reason you take the bus, if you, if you can't afford a car, which is a cultural uh, issue. Um, you know, some of it you know, grounded in poverty, some of it in race, um, you know, many other uh, factors like that. I uh, came into 2018 being very Pollyanna-ish and perhaps overly optimistic because of my own experiences. I rode the bus for a year um, in Nashville, uh, at least once a week, you know, would do uh, a lot of writing about it, uh, saw some of the areas where we could, you know, the incremental steps that we could improve. Some of them have been implemented. You know, for example, having, when I first came, you still had to use cash to pay for the bus. 
Um, so now we have Quick Ticket. You know, you you, you can use our mobile phone. You got now. a little piece of paper spit back. Said you had twenty five cents right. left on your little card. <laughs> I remember that, and I was like, you know, I don't carry cash on me. I was like, and that was I had to you know go into my little change jar, you know, that I had there just to get that. <laughs> um, you know, some of the other changes have been you can track your bus. You know, there's a, there's a dedicated app you can do that. Um, you know, but the frequency issue is a huge problem. So for me, what I would be happy at. Um, as a as a voter and as an observer, is a frequent bus system that is reliable and it'll get me from point A to point B in a consistent way. Uh, and it doesn't sound flashy, but it's important because you're not going to ride the bus if you have an alternative. I, I was um, talking to the former mayor of Lebanon years ago, uh, and he was conceptually into regional transit, but he said, "I'm not giving up my truck." And so that's an uh, that's just the reality attitude. We are a car-driven city, and the question is, how do we change that? That that's a choice. I live in a neighborhood that has sidewalks, so I have already an advantage. Uh, you know, a lot of East Nashville has uh, sidewalks, and so that's a huge, huge advantage when it comes to livability. But it also drives up costs in many ways. Yep. Uh, you know, my my goal, my dream would be to see everybody have a sidewalk because right now. Um, I have a friend who lives in uh, North Nashville, 16th, um, you know, Buchanan area, and they're a victim, I will say, of the sidewalk ordinance where you have the new houses have a side, little sidewalk in front of their house, but nothing anywhere else, which defeats the purpose of, of urban planning. You I mean, see it everywhere yeah, in the and, city. And, and the ideal is you have everyone being able to walk. Um, you know, we're recording this on um, February 23rd, and the next day, there's going to be a, an event for, to honor the, the victims of pedestrian deaths. And, and I mentioned that because this is a huge issue. You know, crosswalks, sidewalks. Friends of mine who live in Madison, they were begging for years for just a simple crosswalk, for a streetlight. You know, those little things. Um, one of the biggest um, takeaways that has influenced a lot of my writing in recent years is this whole notion of, of people's perception of where we're going as a city. So Vanderbilt Poll has shown for the last couple of years that most people today believe we're going in the wrong direction, at least the last two years. Right. And wrong track. Wrong track. And one of the things that, that really exemplified that I was doing a community cleanup was the first post-pandemic cleanup in my neighborhood. And I was asked by numerous people, because they knew what I did, they said, how is it that the city can afford a new stadium, but they can't pick up the garbage? And even though they're different pots of money, it didn't matter to them. It was irrelevant. What mattered to them was the city couldn't do its basic job. And yet, wealthy people were going to benefit from this. And that is very real. And that goes back to your fairgrounds uh, discussion because that's precisely it. Who gets to control this? Who benefits? And a lot of people who loved going to the flea market, it was, you know, very charming, you know, going there in 2014, but have either been priced out, can't go there. It's not accessible. You've got the parking situation there at the soccer stadium. Uh, and and it's it's very difficult because who gets to who gets to have that advantage? Well, and and even with this tr- transit referendum, a regressive uh, half percent increase in sales tax is not going to affect wealthy folks at all. Ultimately, to your point about engineering, it's possible to do all the stuff we want. Like, for example, one of the, the, the debates currently going on is where to put these lanes for buses and where, where do they actually work? Because the buses themselves cannot function down the middle of a road currently because you need doors on both sides. So do, are we buying a whole new fleet of buses? Are we putting the lane on the right lane and then moving all four lanes over to the one side? Like, that's the engineering stuff and the technical advisory committee It's what they're doing right now. I do think that there's still more space. I believe one percent left on the 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 hotel motel tax. If you're going to create a high capacity route to the airport, it does feel like that's a place where you could use a different source of funding, and it would be very popular. I think with folks at the airport, but I think you have to start again with a dedicated bus lane and provide that piece of property 
to then convert to a light rail down the road. Yeah, I, and, I, and frequency. And I mentioned that because I've taken the bus to the airport. I took it from my neighborhood, you know, went to downtown, the you know, Music City Central, and then down to the airport. When I got back from my trip, I couldn't take it back because it was going to be another two and a half hours before the bus was going to come. And so I decided to take a lift back home. It's, you know, much more, because it would have been $2 with the bus uh, yep. or whatever it was back then. And, uh, you know, $17, $18 for the lift. And I chose to pay that premium precisely because I needed to get home at that moment, you know, not wait two and a half hours. And that's going to be a choice issue because, you know, we can say we want better transit, but it's got to be transit that is fast, that is efficient, that gets you where you're going to be consistently. And, and, and again, you know, the, the light rail conversation, you know, in, in my head, I was, I was, I was very excited, but I'll tell you one light rail that I've not been very impressed with. If you've been to San Jose, California, I mean, it's very nice, but it doesn't go to the airport. It just goes, it's in downtown back and forth, back and forth. And it really doesn't make much sense to me because I was uh, doing some consulting for the San Jose Mercury news back in 2018 and sent some reporters out there. And they said, who, who did you see? I said, all we saw were, were homeless people there. We didn't see regular writers. And that situation may have changed in recent years, um, but the situation was that people, workers there, weren't taking transit as their primary route. You know, can we convince people to make a culture shift? Maybe we've created, you know, culture shifts when it comes to the way that we communicate, you know, whether it's the iPhone or ride shares, you know, being comfortable going to a car with a stranger who's driving. We, people are now comfortable with that. Can we do it on a bus where you're in the same bus with 40 different people, some who yeah. may be wearing a suit and tie like me or some who, or I should say jacket and tie like me, or or some who, who may be homeless, who, who may be going to the mission. And because I grew up with a habit that all types of people were there, it says not, doesn't make me a better person. It just makes me used to it. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the, the question is, will other people do that? Um, I will make a quick plug for transit within the city itself, because I do take the bus occasionally when I go to the legislature, because it's much easier to go from my office in Midtown um, all the way to, because it drops you off right in front of the state capitol. It's $2. I don't have to pay for parking. I don't have to get all sweaty, you know, walking from wherever. And so I think that there's there's something there. And 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 there's a really great team. You know, Steve Bland, I've known him for many, many years. Um, and uh, I believe he was in Pittsburgh before that, if I recall correctly. He really is a visionary person. And the question is, do you have the resources to be able to do what you need to do? And is it realistic? And finally, are people willing to pay for it in the general services district? Yeah. And when we look at the zoning bills that just, just, you know, that was just deferred, everybody who was in that outer rim outside of the urban area of Nashville voted against it. And that's a huge problem when yeah. you can't get, you know, oftentimes we, offline, we talk about the 21 votes. We had 20, you know, whatever it was, it was tied that Angie Henderson, the vice mayor had to break. Well, you're doing my job for me because you mentioned the legislator, and now we're going to talk about the, the state legislative office. Uh, but before we do, we've got our announcement. And Jamie, of course, Pod Bless Nashville, PBN, is brought to you by the wonderful and amazing folks at? Eighth and Roast. That is right. Eighth and Roast on Eighth uh, Avenue, the OG location, Charlotte Avenue. If you want to come hang out with us on the first Tuesday of every single month, we will be there at 830. Uh, you have a standing invitation. David, if you'd Thank like you. to come, Thank you, you, you're invited all the time. No, no question about it. But also swing by the airport location. I don't know maybe why you would swing by the airport location, but just remember they've got one if you're going in and out of BNA. They also have a brand new location over on Vanderbilt at West End area as well. So check that location out. Great breakfast sandwiches. But most importantly, ethically sourced better beans than you're going to get anywhere else. And you can get them at grocery stores all across the city. So, uh, all right, time for our announcement real quickly here, guys. I got to, you, you mentioned earlier. People need more history, more education, more learning about the history of Nashville. I'm obsessed with it. Jamie's a big reader who loves history as well. This is, we have just, just for our audience. I'm very excited about this. Just for our audience. You can use a promo code PBNVUP. You got that? P B N 
V U P. When you go to Vanderbilt University Press and purchase a book dot com from them, Vanderbilt University Press dot com, you will get forty percent off all of their titles and free shipping. It begins on February twenty sixth, which is when this episode comes out. Runs through June, uh, of course. Friend of the pod, Betsy Phillips. Friend of PBN, Braden. Friend of the show. You don't say pod. <laughs> Are you offended by the word pod, David? I am not offended. Okay, by neither it, am David. I. But it's twitter.com if you type it in, in the URL, by the way. Just, if, just oh, oh now words matter, huh? How about that? <laughs> I'm just now saying. words matter. I'm You're in saying. and out on that. You're in and out. We'll get to inva- <laughs> we'll get to invasion in just a second, okay? Uh, eighth and roast. But also PBNVUP. Use that promo code at VanderbiltUniversityPress.com. You'll get 40% off any of their titles from now and th- through the end of June. Of course, Betsy has a great book coming out very, very soon. Uh, I believe this summertime, I believe, is when it's coming out about uh, the KKK and Dynamite the FBI. Nashville. Yeah, the KKK, the FBI, and the bombings in the 50s in the city. It's going to be a great story. But again, learning about the city and history. And so special thanks to, to Betsy and to Vanderbilt for, for giving our listeners an opportunity to learn more about the city for 40% less. So there you go. PBNVUP. Two graduates of UT Knoxville pimping something <laughs> with the word Vanderbilt in it. The irony is not lost on me, Braden. So uh, anyway, there's the announcement for the show. Uh, do appreciate you guys. And of course, go check out Eighth and Roast as well. All right, let's, we'll, we'll get to Nazis. We'll get to, uh, the former president being in town and uh, irony and hypocrisy being the coin, coin of the realm. But uh, obviously at the state level, there's a lot of, a lot of very random stuff happening, but the voucher is, is still. Hey, hang, hang on. Okay, I got, okay. I got one. See, he, see, he complains that I interrupt him. <laughs> Senate bill 1968 was voted on, on the floor of the Senate. And that's the one person, one ballot bill. And a certain senator who was contemplating running for <laughs> Congressional District 7 begged off and voted in favor of the bill that not unironically passed by one vote. Um, so one ballot, one vote is halfway home to become law in the state of Tennessee. Interestingly enough, the question is, can it be applied retroactively to someone who is already <laughs> running for office and uh, in both both places. So, so how, many, how many times have people had to sue the Tennessee legislature just to, to <laughs> test those things? You know, we, we look at whether it's the drag law or, you know, gender affirming care or other things. This is another one where, uh, you know, there's so many, you know, I'll tell you one of my favorite memories when I first got to town is I got to meet John J. Hooker, the legendary attorney, you know, politician, uh, mini pearl fried chicken, all, all that stuff. And we would go to Nashville, you know, once a month, it felt like, like church. You know, we, he was here, he handed me a constitution. He, he signed his name, he autographed his name on the Tennessee state constitution. <laughs> And he said, the next time you're going to read this, and I did. And it, it felt like being at, at Bible study with him because we would read together and it was fantastic. And he would often say to me, he's like, you know, a lawyer shouldn't have to understand this. You know, you, the ordinary citizen, I'm not a lawyer, but you, the ordinary citizen should be able to understand what's in here. And I think that that's sometimes one of the things over the last couple of years I've been thinking about this is that we make things sometimes so complicated and we really don't understand sometimes what this legislation actually does except perhaps to harm to impugn you know in this case you know this legislation is targeted at gloria johnson who's uh no 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 that's not true i i i think you're giving uh, our elected officials way too much credit for knowing what's in the constitution (laughs) well in fairness clearly they do not whether something whether something is constitutional or not 
is not their prerogative. They don't care. That is up to the judiciary. But I agree with you, David. They should terminate. They should be able in to. In fairness. So ultimately, here, here here's the question: Do you think people should be able to run for two offices in general on I, the I, same ballot? On the same ballot. So I, I don't think it should be restricted, but I don't like it. I would not yeah. vote for someone answer. who was running for both offices. And uh, and you've seen it before. It's it's not unusual, you know, uh, when when you've seen um, uh, people running for both state and federal. You know, when I lived in Florida, it was it was the strangest thing. The law was changed to allow. Uh, Governor Charlie Crist to run for the Senate back in 2010. Then it was changed um, that you couldn't run for a state and federal office at the same time. And then it was changed back to benefit Governor DeSantis. No. So, yeah. So just a few <laughs> years ago. So this is just playing with politics. I mean, you should yeah, let people yeah. run. You should let the people yeah. decide that this person doesn't know what they wa- want and then vote them out. I, I also think there's an interesting twist to all of this where you could put a, a bar on sort of the uh, like how high up the ladder you're going for offices, I think would be a smart implementation too. Like if it's a state wide race or a federal race, you got to pick one. But if it's a county, like because there are lots of local municipalities that have people that need to run for yeah. multiple things, where you need to be on a school board over here, but also a metro council over here, whatever. And so, like, th- I think you could pretty easily just say, look, state, uh, I, statewide or federal, you can't do well, two I think, I think one interesting difference is that you're you're at the part-time level and you come to Metro Council or the state legislature and you've got, you know, Darren Jernigan or Bo Mitchell who are examples who were Metro Council members before becoming, and they were, they concurrently served for a while, you know, in both seats. And Jim Gatto. Yeah. And, and, and so the question is, you know, I often think about, you know, was there a conflict in the way they voted? I, I don't know. I wasn't here when they were serving in both offices at the same time. Uh, but that would be an interesting question to explore. Yeah. You know, is there a benefit to the city? You know, today when we're the the city and uh, and 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 uh, and the state have been at each other. Although I will tell you, I was at the Tennessee Press Association conference. I'm a board member this week, and Cameron Sexton, the Speaker of the House, and Jack Johnson, the Majority Leader, were speaking to the group, and they said kind things about Mayor O'Connell and Nashville. They were, you know, answered questions from students from me about they're, a variety. They're, of they're issues. playing nice for right now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, well, the nicest thing is that they said they believe in a transparent and free press, which made me very happy. And, uh, you know, and, and my, hope, my hope is that they respect the newspapers and the business. Unless you're trying to get the Super Bowl to come to town, then that you're not allowed to see that. Um, that's, that's a whole other reference altogether. But the, the voucher bill and the franchise tax refund rebate are the two major big stories in the legislative body. We've talked a lot about the franchise tax. The vouchers are far more complicated because we have a little bit more information now. We've explained the dynamics out in the rural counties quite often. I think folks understand what's at play. The that We have not seen the House bill at time of taping. It, it appears to be sort of this all-encompassing approach to try to um, lessen the blow for the students that are kind of removing some public funding or how they're going to pay for it. There's some budgetary concerns. But ultimately, I think that what people need to know, I, I think they understand the issue. What they need to know about the bills is that there is no agreement right now between the governor of the Senate and the House. They all have different bills. Nobody has seen all three of them. Half the people that are voting on these things are admitting openly that they haven't seen the other version of it yet and that they're hoping to, I guess, come to the table and, and reach some sort of agreement. This is as complicated. I think the message to folks right now is this is as complicated as we all thought it was going to be. And these tensions in these rural counties are extremely palpable in those districts. Well, you know, Sexton and Johnson talked about, I think, the big question for everybody, both opponents and uh, supporters, which, will this destroy public schools? 
their contention, of course, is that this will not destroy public schools. You've got a million students in K through 12. You've got you know, 900 some thousand in public schools, very few people who go to private school. But the question is, does this chip away at the integrity of public schools? Does it chip away at, you know, already, uh, you know, Nashville has been very unhappy about, uh, you know, National Mayor Cooper was very open about his disdain for TISA, for the uh, Tennessee uh, uh, Student Achievement. I'm trying to remember the, the, the name of the acronym, but, uh, you know, that basically changed the basic education program. He said that, you know, Nashville was disadvantaged by the way that this is funded. So I'm seeing, I'm hearing from, we're actually going to be uh, posting soon a guest opinion piece by a rural educator who's very much opposed to this because of that uncertainty. And because the question is, where are these kids going to go if they choose to have, um, you know, a, a private voucher? They're not every county has, you know, private schools. Um, I have a, a columnist of ours, um, Andrea Williams, who's new to us, and she is a parent of four. She's an African-American woman. I mentioned it because she's our Black Tennessee Voices curator. And she wrote in favor actually, of the, of the vouchers building. I thought it was such an interesting piece because she as a parent said, my perception is that the schools, the public schools are not meeting the challenge. You know, only 30 to 40% of kids are reading at grade level, depending on the county. Why wouldn't I try something new, especially if my community has been historically disadvantaged? It's a great point. Now, she did have a, ca- a caveat, which the governor should address, which is the whole, whole notion of support uh, network around you. You know, are these children prepared to go to Montgomery Bell Academy or wherever, you know, that's just an extreme case, but, you know, are they prepared to to meet the academic rigor of these particular schools? And that's the big question at that moment. Well, and a lot of these bills, like, again, just to like cherry pick examples, like one of them is that the house bill is going to try to, you know, reportedly fund a bunch of increase for teachers pay. Okay. That sounds good. That's great. Um, one, I think the Senate one is like, well, we need to have some testing involved in making sure that this is actually working with, with private school kids. Cause the governor's version like doesn't even have any oversight or checks and balances. What about transportation? You know, how is that going to be funded? And then the escalating cost of course, is I think the one that I, I, I would assume that Republicans who are looking for some cover to vote against it, can use the budget and say, we don't really know where this escalates. Sure, it's 140 million in the first year because of X number of kids, 20,000, we can do the math, but if it's open to every single kid in the entire state and we start, like the escalating costs of this are, are, are sort of unpredictable at this point. So I, it's just, it's a total mess. And it's kind of what we said to folks from the beginning of this is it's going to be a total mess. We're kind of in a back to the future moment because I just recently saw an article, it might've been in the Washington Post about, you know, let's pay teachers $100,000 a year and solve the problem that way. This was being discussed back, you know, 15 years ago. You know, there was a, a Harlem uh, public school zone. It was a, it was an experimental, almost like a charter school where they were paying teachers this amount of money. Um, and I haven't followed up with them, but this is not a new idea. You know, a lot of the things we're talking about, I think, is, you know, let's try to experiment. And, and the question is, do we serve everybody well, poorly, whatever it might be, or do we allow some kids who may not have the economic means a chance to maybe get to that next level? And that, that's the question. Is it our role as, as, as the public, as the taxpayers, to fund that? Uh, and that's the fundamental issue. I will tell you, I have um, some sympathies in the sense that, and I addressed, uh, I was invited by the, by the late Anna Shepard, who was the former school board chair, to talk to the school board. And I said, my experience is that I grew up in Chicago. My mother worked for the public school system. They were on strike for years at a time in the 80s when I went to school. My parents made the decision to send me and my siblings to parochial school. It was one of the best choices for our education that could have been made. We had consistency. We had amazing rigor. It, we were prepared to go to college. We were prepared to get, have great careers. And so I'm sympathetic to those arguments that you want to do better for your child. The question is, what is our decision as the public? You know, is, is this good for our society? 
Um, I have some doubts in this because those questions haven't been answered. I, I wrote a column right after Governor Lee's uh, State of the State address about you presented this, and you presented this with Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the governor of Arkansas, a few months ago, but you haven't answered the fundamental questions that a lot of people have about how do you measure this? How do you measure success? And is this just more money? And when it comes to allowing anybody to receive one of these vouchers, because after a certain point, it's going to be anybody, mm-hmm. not just kids. We, we, have, um, we had a, a guest opinion piece by a Michigan State University professor who talked about the fact that voucher programs currently they're seeing very little success for students when it comes to academic achievement. I think Arizona just published a bunch of information about yes. this as well. And they're seeing private schools um, uh, raise tuition. You know, basically they're getting a new government subsidy. Who then benefits? Yeah. And, and, and those are questions that we need to be able to answer. The public deserves those, those answers. It's almost as if there's been a concerted long-time effort to attack the value of public education. I don't know. It's just, like if we all had, if the public education system was as good as private schools, we wouldn't be having this conversation, but there's been a concerted effort to, I don't know, what's the right word? Not defund them, but uh, have make you them less seen, effective. I don't know. Have you all seen the, the documentary by design from the National Public uh, Education Foundation? It talks about what they say, the design of the national public schools, you know, from the time of desegregation, they take it from the late sixties all the way to the current era. And you have a lot of people who, you know, the, the late Judge Dinkins is, is in the documentary. You have other people who are very much involved in education saying the reason we haven't grown, you know, Nashville public schools have actually shrunk, you know, from that time to now was, you know, you have, you know, racist policies, you have new schools being opened, you have, you know, all these complicated issues about people not being want to be in spaces uh, with others who are not like them. Um, and those with means could do something different. Uh, and so their contention, and it's a very compelling case, is that this was done by design. So you have been chipping away at your public mm-hmm. school's viability for this long. And now you're basically just sustaining being places where, uh, you know, kids can get education. That said, I, I'm a big booster from the standpoint of, I was a, a volunteer for Pencil uh, for uh, a year where I read to kindergartners. And the real, only reason I stopped was because of the tornado and the pandemic. So I, I hadn't been back to the schools. But recently I was at Jones Padilla Elementary. It's the, the public school. If, if I had kids, that's where, you know, the elementary school kids were. That would be my zone school. And I was there reading to kids, participating in a program with my brother's keeper, and it was really meaningful to see the fact that you have dedicated public officials, dedicated teachers who are there serving every single day. I got to know the school librarian of the former school I I volunteered at, Buena Vista Elementary, that's been closed a few years ago. Uh, But I saw in real life that they care, and they want to see everybody get the best outcome possible, knowing that many of these kids come from very hard situations. So I'm very compassionate about that as well. Uh, let's transition to news. I'm going to call it big N news. What are the changes since you got here in 10 years ago to now at, at the Tennessean? So uh, the media industry has been disrupted since the late nineties. You know, Craigslist was probably the biggest hit. I remember back in 2004, 2005, it killed the classified ad department. So essentially you've seen a vacillation. You've seen, you know, multiple rounds of layoff. Um, you've seen, you know, and recently the news isn't good for some, you know, the, the messenger vice just closed down, you know, you're seeing all sorts of stuff, but you're also seeing some positive things. Uh, and I'll, I'll put it in two fronts, the nonprofit sector, which is uh, doing very well, though it had a little bit of a tough year, whether it was, you know, NPR or others, they are also susceptible to economic cycles or even, you know, my own company, Gannett. And while I can't speak for the company, I can talk about, you know, some, some basics that I have seen. So our circulation certainly has gone down as it has everywhere. So I, I, you know, back 20 years ago, it might've been between three and 400,000. So circulation is the number of newspapers that are delivered to a household. Today, it's closer to 25 to 27,000. But 
the unique visitors to our site is 3.5 million, which is the highest viewership of any media in the entire Middle Tennessee region. And 1% of that, about 35, 36,000, actually pay for it. And I often tell people, imagine if 2% paid for it, how much we could invest in our newsrooms. So we saw a tremendous decline. When I came back in 2014, uh, and it's been reported by you know my friends at the national scene extensively, it was a hard year because uh, it was a time when people had to reapply for jobs where uh, you know we saw a newsroom in distress and several people, I was part of the wave that came in to help rebuild a newsroom. And when I came, I came uh, knowing what I was coming to. Uh, I have a background in journalism and tech and business. And so I said, if this doesn't work out, I've got options here. <laughs> so, But the fact is, I'm really committed to journalism. I'm really committed to serving the public. Um, and what I've seen since then, our newsroom has grown by 15%. You know, we are up in terms of our page view goals. Um, and we just saw something magnificent happen uh, just this past week, which was my parent company, Gannett, invested $2 million now in the Indianapolis Star. They have a new editor named Eric Larson, and that's all going to jobs, jobs in journalism and jobs in sales, because we need both. You know, we need someone to sell the product. We need someone to do the work that is being out there. And we work, you know, we, we don't influence each other's decisions, but we have to be mindful of the fact that we have to serve the public. So, I mean, it, it, it's an exciting time, but it's always been disruptive. I think one of the things that's been hard especially for some uh, people who are new to journalism and are not used to those disruptive cycles uh, is, you know, you got to realize that I cannot predict the future of what's going to happen. We have a lot of, you know, uh, competitors. We have artificial intelligence is one of our biggest, mm -hmm. uh, both it's an amazing tool and a very big threat if used improperly. Uh, and um, we also have, you know, the issues of, you know, how do we get the news to people where they are at? Uh, at the Tennessee Press Association uh, meeting, we had our new Beyonce beat reporter, talk. Uh, and, um, she did a great job, Cashay McClay. And we also have a Taylor Swift reporter, uh, Brian which, West, which everybody mocked that when the Taylor Swift reporter position became available, but in hindsight and considering who won the Super Bowl, <laughs> based on the script, the NFL seemed like it's the deep state that wrote the script. seemed like a real good call. Yeah, I mean, it might have been psyops. No, that's a joke. That's <laughs> yeah. a joke. Uh, but with the Beyonce reporter, you know, a quick stat. Somebody asked about covering a beat. You know, the Dallas Cowboys, it was, was mentioned. Dallas Cowboys is the most valued franchise in all of NFL. They're worth $8 billion. Beyonce in her concert series last year drew an economic impact of $4.5 billion. One person around a whole fan base. And so what Cachet explained was this is not just about Beyonce love. This is about music. It's about an industry. It's about a fan base. It's about an, a global community. And, uh, you know, she has experience working in London, Washington, L.A. Um, She's gone country now. Yeah. And, and yeah, exactly. And, and look, Texas, it's hold them. First, first black woman <laughs> to have a number one country hit. You know, just this, this week that we're recording. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, it's a damn good song. And there's <laughs> something. Have you, have you done the dance? I, I, no one wants me to do that. No, uh, you're going to do it later. I'll put it on TikTok. <laughs> but, but, that will not happen. But that whole notion is that you have to think differently. We, we can't think of being the 1990s media. Uh, I came in in 2000. So to give you an example of my journey, my, my dream job was to be an editorial page editor. But when I first started, I was told, hey, kid, you know, wait 30, 40 years down the line. But I, I was able to do it at the age of 29 because of the shifts in media environment. We saw the internet come well, in. And we, that, that was the, not to interrupt, but that was the original sin. I mean, <laughs> ultimately, it was giving it all away for free on the internet. Oh, yeah. Like, that was the original absolutely. sin. But you had to have people understand. So I had, I had two things that I brought to the job. And the first one was the being comfortable in social media atmosphere and in the internet. But there was something even more important that I think has benefited my work here, which is I was very much an, a, a root community journalist. 
I, I was an uh, editor of a Spanish language paper. I was out at events all the time. I was meeting people. I was in people's homes to understand our readership. I care deeply about this. When I do my report, even though I, I opine, uh, so for example, uh, you, you'd mentioned, you know, are we going to talk about Nazis? You know, I wasn't, I didn't see the marchers myself, but I was at the rally, not as a supporter, but as an observer, because I wanted to see what people were saying. So when I can, I go out to to try to f- figure out what is it, pe- what are those conversations? And those conversations lead to, I met with a couple of, uh, you know, my own councilman, Jacob Coopin in District 19. I saw Sherry Wiener, who have diametrically opposed positions when it comes to these zoning bills. But I got to listen to them and hear what they had to say on that in addition to, and, and they're both Jewish American, so they also had that uh, that as well. It's very clear that you are putting in the work to be in as many places as possible to understand as many different perspectives as possible, which is something that we believe in in a big way on on this show. And look, not, we don't have to get into the Nazi thing just yet, but I, I'm curious about where you think news is going. It feels like subscription model. It feels like grants diversified revenue streams, not to get too nerdy here on media, but it does feel like that is the future. And I'm curious of, you know, we just had, you you were listening to Jerome, we had Jerome in and I I asked him, what is working from a community engagement standpoint? And one of the things I've learned through this show with you, Jamie, and, and, and just in my journey as a both media and voter in Nashville, is like, you can't make people paying attention to the news can't feel like homework every single night. Like there has to be some Beyonce and some Taylor Swift mix in. There has to be something fun about it as well to light. It's why I think the the daily show types of products have done well in the mid two thousands. So what, what does the future look like from, it can't just all be TikTok videos for kids that no. are getting all their news off TikTok right now. No, no, public service journalism has a role for sure. It's very important to me personally. And that's what has allowed me to continue doing what I'm doing uh, but we also have to have a diversified model to, to echo what you're saying. So uh, the Gannett Revenues model, and again, I'm not speaking for the company, but just public information, is that nearly 40% of our revenues are now from digital, which is, you know, just 20 years ago, it would have been 5 10%. Digital is so important. And it comes in terms of marketing, in terms of, co- terms of, co- of subscriptions. When it comes to grants, even though we're a publicly traded company, we have a grant-operated um, position. It's our First Amendment reporter, Angel Latham. It's a two-year uh, position from um, the First Amendment. I believe it's the the Freedom Forum. I'm sorry, and and she does work all about. She just did a story about Student Press Freedom Day, uh, which happened on February 22nd, uh, and and so that's really important. Uh, but it's going to co- consistently be changing. Like the, the days where we expected to make money hand over fist, making 45 to 50 percent uh, profit margin, it's gone. It's you know we may get to some point like that in the future, but currently it's constantly experimenting, constantly doing things. What they're doing at the Indianapolis Star which is investing to see what is going to work. And some experiments are going to fail and others are going to succeed spectacularly. And, and I think what, what the very fact, the reason that we're up 15% in terms of staffing over the last six, seven years is precisely because we've been willing to experiment. Um, one of my, my proudest things from 2023 was a partnership with News Channel 5, Belmont University, American Baptist College, and League of Women Voters of Nashville to put on four Nashville mayoral debates. I was in contact with 106 campaigns the mayoral campaigns, and also the vice mayoral and, and council campaigns. So I had um, all this information, and, and this is to, to get to your question, because we were doing all this work, we had the debates, we had these long-form questionnaires, and I kept on getting friends coming to me at, at you know one of the local bars that I go to and say, hey, who should I vote for? I'm like, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. It's like this. That's... There's nine hours of content exactly. for, for you to go but, figure it out. But it wasn't good enough. Imagine if I said, I well, I don't, I don't endorse, so I'm not going to tell you. Instead, I decided to create a scorecard that drew over 200 new subscribers, tens of thousands of page views. And it was, I should have thought of this a long time ago because what I decided to do is say, well, let's, 
Let me ask you, I mean, do you care if the person's a Republican or Democrat? Do you care that the person has held elective office? Do you, you know, we asked them in the questionnaire, what are your top three priorities? How do they compare? It's digestible. And it was digestible. It was yep. easy to read and it was a hit. And I realized you need both. You need, you need both the, the basic and also you need the in-depth for the niche readers, the paying niche readers who are going to want that. So yep. it's, it's a lot of work, but it's, it's worth it, I think. So... 10-year anniversary of being in Nashville. I want to know how you viewed Nashville when you accepted the job before you came here versus how you view Nashville now. And you hit on it a little bit earlier, I think, when you say said we're not as progressive as we, I would say, pretend to be. We have some politicians saying we're progressive, but our policies don't match that because I think there's a broad disconnect between elected officials and the people most notably being again a point you touched on if you're not filling the potholes paving the roads and picking up the trash all that other stuff you're bogged down doing doesn't really matter Mm -hmm. because sam stocker he's kind of he's made a point that stuck with me say yeah you might say it comes from a different pocket but those pockets are filled with our money One question I asked my my recruiter, former publisher of mine, when I was um, going for the job and and when it was being looked at for the job was, it was a very silly question today, but it was like, do I have to like country music? (laughs) And what she said to me is like, no, but you better learn to appreciate it. Uh, I've become a fan of country music. I've also have come to understand the complications and problematic nature when it comes to especially the issues with race. But I like going to the Country Music Hall of Fame quite a bit. I love the fact that this is about storytelling. I didn't grow up with country music. So I grew up in a, a Colombian-Cuban household, grew up with classical music, Latin music, all this. So I was not exposed to it and did not appreciate just the beauty of so many of these songs. So Emily Lou Harris was my, my, was my gateway drug. And from there, that's, that's a that's a good yeah, one. Yeah, and from there, I really have come to uh, enjoy um, a lot of uh, artists who tell stories from the heart. I mean, we, we look at probably the most viral moment of the recent Grammys: Luke Combs and Tracy Chapman singing "Fast Car" together. What a beautiful, beautiful connection! A thirty-year-old song written by a black woman. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> lesbian. Yeah. New people are finding out she's. And a now, lesbian. now I will say, I will say, find someone who looks at you the way Luke Combs looks at Tracy Chapman (laughs) and you'll you'll be good. Cause he clearly, he, he did that out of pure reverence for her and for the song. And that gives all of us a permission structure to like, enjoy it at, at the same time, not to go off on a, Grammy's tangent here. But. No, no, but I think it's great. You know, I will say, I, I love, because I, I saw how she, how he looked at her. He was mm-hmm. so deferential and so respectful. And yep. it, it turned out to be a beautiful, beautiful performance. I, I'm a kinesthetic learner, so I, I need to experience things all the time. I like, I'm a big, you, you might find me when I go to the Frist, I'll be at the child mm-hmm. section, you know, drawing and, and painting stuff. <laughs> but for example, when I was working on a transit project, I called um, the MTA, the WeGo now, and asked them for a meeting. And they said, your conference room or mine. I said, no, I want to be on a bus. We did a bus, uh, and there's a video on the Tennessee website where our editorial board members were on a bus with Steve Bland and uh, some board members talking about these issues. Because I said, how am I going to be able to experience and understand this if I don't see what's happening? And we were on the number 12 bus going from downtown station all the way down Nolensville Pike. And it was a phenomenal experience. And I think it changed the minds, too, of our editorial board members, some who had never ridden a bus before in Nashville, uh, and also allowed this to be a very human experience. And so I love experiencing things. I love Ascend Amphitheater. I saw John Legend there a few years ago, a phenomenal concert. Uh, saw Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton was looking at me when, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yes, she makes she you feel, yes, she, she makes you feel like she's looking at you when she's singing and she said she played nine instruments. I mean, this is just, yeah, yeah. she's as 
she's that great. And, um, and she's she's basically taught every child in Tennessee to read as well. Yes. Like just let's remind, biggest contribution. Let's remind everybody that she gives free books to every child born in the state for like the first five years of their life. Just yeah. want to point that out. You know, f- from a from a more serious thing for just a moment. You know, uh, being an LGBTQ uh, person and journalist is somewhat challenging at times. Being in Tennessee, I'm I am in a position of privilege where I enter the capital in and out because I have a position of privilege. But I'm also someone who uh, would be impacted by many laws, uh, not by the Natural Marriage Act, because I got married in New York City, not in, not in Tennessee. Um, but those things are, are harrowing to me, and I, I know trans people, I know trans children, and, so, and I know that I have been told by friends who ask me, you know, isn't Tennessee racist, misogynist, transphobic? And I'm like, the reason I'm here, and the reason many of us stay here, is because these are where the stories need to be told. We are at a line in the culture war if we're not here, who's going to do it? And you have to have courage to live in Tennessee today. That brings me to like, what feedback on relative to those points do you see? What what articles are driving hate towards you via emails from readers, and what do you do with that? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I, I came out actually in my first, I mean, I've been out for a long time, but it, my first column, et cetera, I might as well introduce my husband and my chihuahuas to the public. Cause I said, I'm going to be driven out if you know, I want to find out today. <laughs> and I wasn't, I was actually quite welcome by a lot of people. And most of the hate articles in recent years, um, have been more about if I criticize a Republican, suddenly I'm hateful, you know, why wouldn't I criticize a Democrat? So it becomes more, not so much about me personally, but about ideology. Uh, I just had a column that I wrote criticizing the Congressman Tim Burchett from Knoxville for his, co- for his post, his false you know, post about someone who was not responsible for the Kansas City Chiefs uh, parade shooting. And then uh, Andy Ogles, the Congressman from Murray County, for his remarks on, on, on you know, kill them all. Uh, and I, I got some great uh, uh, feedback saying, you know, great article, you got to call them out. And others saying, you know, you're just a commie. You know, you're, you're a commie. And, you know, when are you going to, you know, criticize Joe Biden? And I'm like, you know, this is, these are Tennessee people. I've, I focus on state and, and city issues. Very rarely would I work, would I write about Joe Biden. Uh, but this is relevant because these are the people who are supposed to represent us, who are in our backyards, who are accountable to us. And I, th- and I think one time, the, the one time that I was a little bit disappointed by a reader, and it, it seems very small in the grand scheme of things, but I had talked about, you know, being married to my husband, and this person sent me a note saying, well, I'm, I'm canceling my subscription. I'm not going to read you anymore because I didn't know you were gay. And I was like, wow. And, and that stung a little bit because I was like, you know, it's, again, it's not that I haven't heard that before, but it was like, you really, that's, so there's no convincing this person. You know, at that point, there's like, I can't. Cure you have you. no redeeming qualities. No, you can't take any good opinions. You can't write any good stories. Yeah. You can't, like, it's, I, I get this in sports a lot where it's like, if you cross over from sports into politics and have an opinion about something, all of a sudden, it's like you're no longer qualified to talk about the Alabama defense now. I've talked about the Alabama defense <laughs> my entire life. <laughs> but because we disagree on like what the corporate tax rate should be on the national level, you no longer can take my opinion seriously about Alabama football. And it's just like, what what are we doing? Well, I, I will tell you, coming I, here, one, one thing I learned very early was that you better be up on sports when you're here, you know, and because, I mean, to start conversations, even true. small talk, you need to know who the players are. You need to know Vanderbilt's record and, you know, complain about it. Uh, you need to know about UT. And today you need to know about NIL and the NCAA. Oh, yeah. And Could you? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not an it, expert, but I, I at least try to read and keep up. If our voting population in this country or in this state or in this city was as good at fact-checking 
their lo- the rest of their lives as they are at fact checking their sports fandom, <laughs> we would live in a significantly better country. Uh, trust me, they will tell you exactly when you get it wrong. The height and weight of the backup linebacker for for the University of Tennessee, um, they are incredible fact checkers. Uh, sports fans are, but this takes us right into words. Words being important. Jamie says it all the time on the show. And you're, you're talking about words tweeted out by a, a representative. Uh, Bill Haggerty was was calling it an invasion, goes down to the border, calls it an invasion. Literally the words used by the, the Nazi demonstrators over the weekend. We had this is sort of bubbling more and more. Right. We get first there's a banner. Right. They hang a banner on, on a bridge. And then the next it's like, OK, we're going to openly support a candidate for mayor in Franklin. And they're just it's becoming more and more emboldened, this behavior. Uh, certainly there's lots of anti-Semitic conversations taking place because of what's taking place in, in Israel and Gaza, but it, it goes back to words, just being important to people. And I'm curious because also you have the LGBTQ perspective on this. I find myself talking with people all the time about, man, it's just Twitter. It's just a tweet. Don't worry about it. But then you look at suicide rates for trans kids in this country that get treated a certain way and there's real life consequences. So how do you both as an individual but also in the news and in the media, like how much value do we place on a tweet or the words used in a tweet or what Bill Haggerty is saying about an invasion that does line up with what we're seeing in a, in a Nazi march? Like I, I, Sometimes I want to say it's not that big of a deal. Don't overreact to a tweet to kill them all or whatever, which again is hateful and stupid. But other times you, you can read data and see data that backs up how important these words can be to embolden people and again, not to go off on a tangent here, but the, the two people that voted down the border security bill, Marsha Blackburn and Bill Haggerty, of course, want border security desperately while voting down the bill that would have helped help add border security. So uh, back to the words part. <laughs> yeah. You know, one thing we have to be very um, cognizant of is that Twitter is a tool that people use to rile up folks. Anger is what is the currency there. Um, and, you know, and this whole language about invasion, it's nothing new. You know, we've heard it for decades in, in this country. Um, back in 2006, during the Bush administration, we um, heard these same words as there was a bill that would have criminalized being an undocumented immigrant. Um, Marsha Blackburn herself, during her Senate campaign in 2018, had these images of, of caravans. She called them the invading migrant caravans that were going to come to Tennessee a thousand miles away from the border. So I'm not surprised by the language because it's something that uh, polling has shown that concerns Republicans, um, immigration, you know, border security, these things. And it's unfortunate that they use that language. And I, I've met with um, several of these folks, including Senator Blackburn, uh, Senator Haggerty, before he became a senator. And face-to-face, they're very prepared. They're very focused. You know, I've, I've told folks, and I, I don't think I've ever told them directly, but I guess this will be my, my, my coming out as I say, but I wish they would be the same people they were with me in a room as they were on Twitter. I, I have a philosophy that if you see a tweet from me, it's the same person that you're going to encounter here or at the grocery store. It's just too much work, you know, to <laughs> pretend to be somebody else. Um, and I think a lot of it is, you know, what do you have to say to be, you know, bombastic and it's not healthy. Um, so words do matter. When we started the civility Tennessee campaign at the Tennessee and, and um, back and we hard launched it in, in 2018 at Vanderbilt. Uh, and it was an interesting, it was a conversation with Jim Brown, who um, was a lobbyist for a long time for National Federation of Independent Businesses and wrote still a book. Still is. Still is? Okay, and uh, it's good to hear. And uh, who uh, wrote a book about um, uh, ending our uncivil wars, I believe that's what, what it was called. Uh, and it was a great conversation about what do we do now? You know, we, th- we launched it deliberately in the first year of the Trump administration. And I started asking readers, you know, through a column, what are you going to talk about in the first Thanksgiving of the Trump administration? I got loads of letters from people really giving some thoughtful ideas, such as, you know, don't pick fights. 
you know, unnecessarily. Uh, model civil behavior. You know, um, you know, what is it that you're trying to model? But it's very difficult because that word civility is so controversial. I had uh, several uh, black friends who told me, you know, that word has been used to silence us and to focus us. And I, I've learned a lot of valuable lessons. You know, I, I, as, as an opinionator, you put your foot in your mouth quite a bit. And so, and I, I certainly have done that. Um, you know, Lawyers do that too. <laughs> all, all, married folk as well. <laughs> but, but, but I think it's important because the values of democracy matter and what we say matters. And I, I remember having this conversation with the school principal at, at a breakfast where he had said to me, how am I going to tell my two 12-year-old sons that he has to respect the office of the presidency, but he shouldn't act like the president. And again, this was in, in 45's administration. And that's that's real. I mean, that that hurts. That that is something that we yeah. have to be, yeah. you know, very cognizant of. I mean, what what we say matters. And so, you know, talking about, you know, President Trump being in former President Trump being at uh, Opulent Hotel uh, for the uh, National Religious Broadcasters Association. No, no, you got to get the whole name. The National <laughs> Religious Broadcasters International Christian Media Convention, right. or as the kids say, the NRBICMC. So I'm not surprised by what he said because it's part of the same type of, you know, bombast, uh, you know, showing off. I, I think one thing that concerned me and, and my colleague Vivian Jones' story, I, normally I'm not horrified by things Trump do because when people say, you know, what did Trump say? I said, was it something bigoted, racist? Was it something outlandish? Um, but when he compared himself to a martyr, first of all, Navalny, the, the dissident who died in Russia recently, to stretching his arms out as if he was Jesus Christ on the cross. And I'm still searching for a picture, and I hopefully by the time the show airs, I'll find a picture of that. Because he, said, he said, I'm a very proud Christian. Three, yeah. ti three times divorced and a adjudicated sexual assaulter. Just pointing well, that out. You know, Article 1, Section 3 of the Tennessee State Constitution, you know, d does not allow us to decide who is the Christian or not. I mean, I'm kind of taking liberties with that, but just to say that we, we shall not invade I, I, the conscience of anyone. I think we I mean, should. I Nikki should. Haley's proof that none of that shit matters, Braden. I... <laughs> <laughs> I think the state of Alabama is proof as well. Uh, look, I, I agree with you that the religion, religious beliefs of other folks in this country should not be made into laws. <laughs> I'm, we, I'm, but, I'm but, real big on that one. So there's two big trends that I have learned, not being a native Tennessean, when I've been traveling throughout the state, especially when we started Civility Tennessee, which may not be new to you, but certainly was new to me, because in 20, 2016, the election, it surprised me until I started traveling across Tennessee. Because they were, the two big trends were, number one, an uh, anti-federal government sentiment that, as people reminded me, had been there since before Tennessee became a state in 1796. You know, we talk about the Whiskey Rebellion and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing was the notion of religion, religiosity, you know, people identify as conservative Christian, where it's part of their political and cultural identity. Uh, and I remember a mentor of mine who, um, when I went out to go speak to a, a group in McMinnville, Tennessee, about 80 miles east of Nashville, uh, I was asked to talk about the first year anniversary of January 6th. And I was a little bit concerned about that. And she said, you know, uh, this is Summer Lee from Vanderbilt University. Um, and she said, you know, and she's from Waverly, Tennessee. So she's from rural Tennessee. And she said, no, don't talk about it as a coup. Don't talk about it as, you know, an insurrection because those can be legal terms. Talk about it as a crime. Because people, reasonable people can see that someone breaking into the state capital or to the U.S. capital, pardon me, you know, is, is not right. You know, it, it's yeah, illegal. Yeah. And people were really receptive to that. And what was interesting, though, is that the conversation shifted that uh, there was a gentleman who then asked me, well, how can I prevent being canceled? And I, and I first thought to myself, what, what does that mean? And then I, I, I joked. No one's ever been canceled. Well, I joked. It's, with never, it's not a real like, thing. Like, like I've survived numerous cancellation it's attempts not, on it's, Twitter. It's not so. a real thing. Um, but. But there's a concern, you know, cancellation, woke. So whenever somebody writes woke in the guest opinion piece, I will talk to the writer 
and say, what did you mean by that? Define it. Tell me what that is. <laughs> what do they say to you? <laughs> they usually do. They usually do. They define actually have it. a definition. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's semi different, but you know, but I, you know, it's generally about feeling. It's almost like the political correct definition, you know, on steroids. It's like you know, you are telling me that I can't say. So erring on the side of sensitivity. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah, it, it sounds terrible. Um, <laughs> they don't want to be limited, Braden. I, I, look, I am you all can't for, limit them. Look, partly why this, and it's so ironic that we were talking with Jerome last week about we. I want to see the racists and the Nazis in four, in 4K, as I think the phrase he used. And then, of course, two days later, we have the march downtown. Not it, it should not be lost on people that four days later, the president, the former president, is in Nashville, and he says, "Quote: Remember, every communist regime throughout history has tried to stamp out churches." just like every fascist regime has tried to co-op them and control them. And he is saying this at a religious conference to religious people. And it, I, it, I guess the irony of him co-opting their entire existence, even though clearly the guy doesn't really believe in any of that stuff, but he will, his, his, his policies will. And again, you don't have to listen to David Plazas or Jamie Holland or me or any news channel. Just listen to what the candidate is telling you they're going to do. And the Alabama Supreme Court, you know, embryos are now people like we just it, you don't have to invent this stuff. It's happening. And it's not I don't think it should be lost on people that we have a Nazi march, albeit 20 people or whatever it was. It wasn't some huge upswell or whatever. But like they're clearly emboldened to behave this way. And 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 it's because words have so much meaning. Yeah, I mean, I want to separate the Nazis from the attendees for just a moment because, sure, you know, my own sure. experience is that, you know, have people... That's not what I was No, 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 I know, yeah. I know, I know. But just to be, be clear, to make sure that people don't think that I'm implying <laughs> anything. Um, but just that, you know, when it comes to the issues of religion, I mean, this is, we've been talking about this for decades. I mean, we school prayer decision for the Supreme Court. And I remember one of our uh, former reporters who's now at the Detroit Free Press, Dave Boucher, you may have uh, encountered him. He was an investigative reporter here for a while, covered the state house went to different parts of Tennessee to talk about right before the 2016 election. And a big theme for people, for voters, was we want school prayer to be back in the classroom, as if that's what something that President Trump could do. So there's this notion, and you know, why have we passed all these Religious Freedom Restoration Acts across the country? Because there is a perception uh, from some people, whether it's exploited, and I think in many cases it is exploited, that your religious rights are being chipped away at. Uh, and... Uh, you know, the First Amendment has five freedoms in there. I wish there would be as much emphasis on all five freedoms as freedom of religion. Uh, you know, of course, freedom of the press is, is near and dear to me, mm -hmm. but but this whole notion of freedom of assembly and freedom to petition your government and, you know, freedom of speech, I mean, these are all, these all matter. You've had a, you had an absolutely wonderful show uh, on Covenant. It was like, it, it broke my heart to hear you recite the names of the victims. But when we talk about the Second Amendment, amendment for some people that supersedes everything else, but the reality is that is one of 27 amendments, you know, in the in the U.S. Constitution, and should have the same credence as the First Amendment. Um, and I think I would encourage everybody to read the state constitution. It is a beautifully written document. And if you like the the U.S. Constitution, wait, there's more. The, the state constitution has such beautiful language, especially the Declaration of Rights. And some things may surprise people that Article One, Section One of the of the Tennessee State Constitution allows the people to remove their government and gives people even more religious freedom than the U.S. Constitution does. And so we need to remind people of that. I, yeah, I think at the time it was heralded as one of the best I, constitutions in the union. I think that is a great piece of actionable uh, for for everyone listening to tell everyone else to go read the beginning of the Tennessee Constitution and how much freedom we should have in terms of religion, I, I think is 
absolutely a good reminder. For I think it falls in the category that when you're a person who's doing well, and whether that you want to call that privilege or what have you, hard work got you there. And particularly if you're white and over 50, if someone is advocating for their rights or some sort of equity or equality, and that removes maybe one of your basket of rights or bundle of rights, and you try to take away one, kind of like these zoning bills, well, all of a sudden you're oppressed. <laughs> you know, you lose, you lose one little privilege, and now you're oppressed. It's like, that. sit down, calm down, you're good. You know, we're just going to give one little thing over here to somebody else. It's yeah, not it's, the end of the world. It's a great point. You know, another actionable thing is for people to go visit some free stuff in Nashville, the Tennessee State Museum, the Tennessee Archives, the library. It's gorgeous, and it's free, and there's parking, and there's great bus lines that go right by there. Uh, and you can learn more about the history, you know, the, both the good and the bad, you know, and you can, you can, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember now the name of the, it was an academic who came down and did a critique of Tennessee State Museum as it told black history in Tennessee, and it was fixed. So it was very responsive. You know, they hold uh, the the annual Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. breakfast there. Um, it, it had to be canceled this year because of the, the snow, but they're bringing it back at the first week of April. So I'm really excited because you have an opportunity to really explore Tennessee history. And, and again, I'm not from Tennessee, but I really enjoy learning about history. And, you know, whether you're talking about Governor Severe or you're talking about, you know, the folks, you know, Ray Blanton, I was just at the Tennessee Press Association. We had Joel Ebert and, uh, and I think you've had them on the show and Eric Schelzig, mm-hmm. um, uh, who were talking about their book, Welcome to Capitol Hill, talking quite a bit about Ray Blanton, the corrupt uh, Democratic governor in the 1970s. And the things you'll do yeah. to a train. <laughs> <laughs> he appointed... Martha Craig Daughtry to the bench, and she later became the first female member of the Tennessee Supreme Court, now on the Sixth Circuit. So, so I to, found that out by inserting shoe leather into my mouth one day. <laughs> so you mentioned history, and I, I know Jamie will appreciate this. Like, I don't know if you watch Billions, the show with Paul Giamatti. Um, Hamilton, obviously a great piece of art that sort of depicts history in a fun way for like my kids to get into it. But I, I told my wife, I was like, no, you got to watch John Adams, which is a show on HBO. I said, you got to watch this because it's basically Billions and Hamilton mixed together. And I know <laughs> and I know Jamie's a huge John Adams fan just as a, an individual. And one of the things that struck me, because I've seen it a couple of different times, but going back, going back and watching it, like the entire construct of the origin of our country is built on disagreement. Like it is built on. And again, at that time, it would have been Federalists versus Republicans, you know, that kind of thing. And we have changed those labels based on large sweeping things that happen, right? Civil rights movement, et cetera. Um, maybe Roe is one of those things. And again, to bring it back to Tennessee. So first of all, the first thing that struck me is just like, man, even in the most inspiring moment in the history of like polit- like all of politics in the world, which you could argue maybe arrogantly that that moment in time is one of the greatest political stories ever told in the history of the world, right? The, the origin of the United States of America. And John Adams is a huge part of that. But that we began with disagreement and fights all the way through the whole process so that it shouldn't be a surprise that we are now here disagreeing and fighting on things in a certain way. So that that was sort of my first takeaway. And he and Thomas Jefferson hated one another. But also, like, had this incredible level of mutual respect at the same time. So I think it's interesting that I in this time where we feel like we're fighting all the time, I'm watching Nazis walk through my street and... You know, I constantly remind people we are all more alike than we think. And this has sort of always been this way. It's just getting it's getting different because of social media. And because, again, I think there's there's other forces at play now 
Um, no, no, John Adams is an amazing miniseries. I, you know, seeing it, but it also reminds you of someone who is so brilliant, but is is so socially inept. Uh, that he's, a, they, he's a human being. Yeah, it's complicated. And and, and and there were some things that people could agree upon, which is the democratic experiment as flawed as it was. And one big thing that people often forget: compromise. You know, compromise has made this nation That's some of them really word. bad. That's a dirty there, word. Now. There is like in the second episode of that miniseries, Benjamin Franklin sits there and he's like, you know, John. Politics is the art of the possible. And all I had was Jamie's voice in my head the entire time. But it, so just to bring it back to Tennessee, uh, Governor Lee has said that this IVF issue in, in Alabama is not going to come to Tennessee. He said, I'm not for that. He has denounced the Nazis as well. Um, so, uh, again, I, the Metro Council. He, he's not for the opinion of the Supreme Court. Right. He supports IVF. He's, he's right. And and again, if you don't know the story, go, go read up on the, the details. But essentially, all the hospitals in Alabama are, are, are stopping Freezing is maybe not the right word, but they're st- they're stopping this IVF just so that people know, uh, it, you know, forty percent of, of people in this country have trouble conceiving and becoming parents. Two percent of children in this country are that you have to use sort of some sort of reproductive technology to get pregnant. Like one in six people in this country have fertility issues. Like there's all kinds of stuff that this is super beneficial for. I I think if an embryo is in fact a human now, according to the Alabama Supreme Court that we should use frozen embryos to draw our districts and get our census fixed in the state of Tennessee. We're underrepresented in the census. We are underrepresented if embryos that are frozen are in fact human beings and have the rights of human beings, should they not be counted in our census, which I know is like eight years out, but whatever. Baker v. Carr, one man, one vote. <laughs> Let's get to counting the men and women in the in the freezer. Another John J. Hooker influence right there. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, anyway, not to take this down a but the rabbit said, hole of John like, Adams and like One of the IVF. things you talk about, like talking about Haggerty, you know, in words, like when he was running for the United States Senate, the, the insider chatter, you know, Dr. Manny Sethi, I think was one of those competing for that. It's like, well, that shit Manny Sethi's saying, he believes it. Haggerty's just saying it. He don't believe it. And so that's a different. You know, talk about, hey, when you meet with them in person, they say one thing, but they act different. That's just, you know, that some of that rhetoric is just red meat to motivate the base because over time, elections have changed in as much as now. You don't worry about trying to attract the middle anymore. The party that wins or the race that wins is the campaign that got their base out motivated. And you can't do in, that. In a, ger- to- in a gerrymandered district. Yeah, embryos are going to help us there with yeah. that. Yeah, you know, you talk about uh, you know the, the senators. It's really interesting to see the dynamic of that because I think Senator Haggerty is is still trying to find his way. Well, how does he fit into this? Because Senator Blackburn casts such a large shadow. I mean, she is a nationally known figure. She's been lampooned on Senator Live and elsewhere, and 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 she has developed her brand very very well over a long time. Senator Haggerty is relatively new to elective politics, and so. Uh, you know, this is something that I think, but but I am encouraged by some things, that, and this is where the difficulty of compromise is. You know, Senator Blackburn has been working with Senator Tammy Duckworth, a Democrat from Illinois, on a variety of issues. I wrote about one recently. They have a bill that would emulate uh, a bill that was passed statewide in Tennessee and two other states that would require domestic violence awareness training for cosmetologists, barbers, etc., uh, across the nation. They're working on that. And, you know, why is it so significant is because in many cases, people who are domestic violence survivors um, or suffering from abuse, that's the one point of social yeah. um, activity that they have. And, you know, this is, could be life-saving in many ways. And it's really fascinating because um, I've, I've met with the, the YWCA um, that's very 
much focus on this on this particular issue, and it's huge. And the fact that those two senators, who otherwise would be diametrically opposed, can work on this particular issue, I think, is really important. I mean, Blackburn worked with Senator Feinstein on many things before she passed away. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- there are things that 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 unfortunately, if people are looking for purity politics, it's not there. Um, and getting rid of two thirty protection for social media companies as it relates to minors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. It, what's interesting, Jamie, about like how our elections are now becoming these primaries, right? Which I don't think anyone argues sort of factually, but again, one of the, one, it's almost irrational how popular working together as a concept is for the voters. The voters look at our elected officials and bipartisanship, even though it seems irrational, the, the names you just put together in sentences seems irrational from an idea standpoint, voters still find that stuff to be incredibly popular. Like you see this, we work, reach across the aisle incredibly popular, even if we are all irrational about it. So the fact that we have these elections that push these candidates further into each corner actually doesn't align with what we actually all kind of want as the electorate. You know, in uh, 2017, this March, um, I, President Trump came to Nashville for the first time as president. He went to municipal auditorium and I decided I didn't want a press pass to go in. I said, I want to stand with the people. You know, that's the, the kinesthetic learner. And so I, I started a mile where the, the cap, state capital is and walked we were walking for five hours, never got in because we were throttled. You know, even though the, the auditorium was not filled, uh, the perception of having this long line behind the municipal auditorium was good for optics for President Trump. And I wrote a piece. Scarcity is, an, is a yeah, commodity. Yeah. Exactly. And, and the piece I wrote was, you know, uh, walking a mile in Trump supporter's shoes. And some people were very angry about me to talk about it because I said, look, you're going to be shut out just like these people were, depending on that policy. But what they were looking for was a champion who was going to basically you know, get rid of all this liberalism in many cases. And, and the people were very nice for the most part. They had come from states, although, you know, they were, you know, very nice. Uh, uh, the only time that they got very riled up was around protesters who were protesting Trump. And you'd hear these Trump, 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 this, it, the, the, these cries that were, you, you see in these movies from, you know, World War II or, 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 or other eras. And, and it was a little bit disconcerting, but it also got me to see that people are hurting a lot. I mean, this is why people voted for Trump in the first place. They mm-hmm. felt uh, very disconnected. Um, I was meeting um, uh, at the Press Association reception with several um, lawmakers, because uh, we have to be able to be journalists regardless of who's president, regardless of who's Speaker of the House, and try to understand what their motivations are. And I had a conversation with uh, Representative David Hawk from Greenville talking about the opioid crisis out in East Tennessee. And just how devastating it gets worse and worse and worse every year. And so for them, you know, what are the local solutions that you can do to make sure that you can treat substance abuse and in a way that will be specific to a, a non overarching federal government solution, um, at least under a democratic administration, because right. it right. does, that tends to switch quite a bit. Yep. Um, but, but it, it, you know, people are people when you get to know people uh, and what they do in the community, it becomes far different. Now, the challenge is this. You know, when you have legislation that's passed that chips away at the rights of individuals, that's what concerns me. I've written a lot about that. The uh, transgender uh, uh, care issue is great red meat for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was talked about at the rally um, yesterday at the, at the Opryland Hotel, you know, as a, as a core issue. Um, Marco Rubio, when he ran for re-election in Florida just a couple of years ago, talked about the fact that he was going to defend uh, you know, the, the little boys from having to be turned into little girls. I mean, it was, it was actually quite well, grotesque. Vanderbilt's not doing gender affirming care anymore, yeah. right? Yeah. Which, which, of course, even the Trump-appointed judge, I believe Eli Richardson, I believe, said 
there's oh like i think the quote is like oh i'm paraphrasing here but like overwhelming evidence that gender affirming care like saves lives yeah. and it helps children eh, six circuit already so. reversed it this is a question though an interesting one about parental rights a question about health care sure. who has that right and i think as we see these further divides on parents these have the right issues. to only choose the education that's it <laughs> Well, so I think the parents have the right. And even think about reproductive rights. Like one thing, when I've had uh, conversations with people about, you know, what apps do I keep? What do I distort? What do I pay for? Like if I if I go to if 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 someone wants to go pay for a pregnancy test, do I avoid using a credit card? Because what if that payment is tracked? Uh, And what if it is certain? And 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 so it's one of those things that people, you know, there there have been proposals that would uh, make legal someone. uh, Taking a uh, a minor across state lines. Well, post Dobbs, I think abortion are up mm-hmm. in our country. Yeah, well, abor- abortions, I believe, were at an all-time low right before. Right. Be- again, that goes along with sex education, which, of course, they want. Okay. So back to your point about the understanding the perspectives of the people that were voting in that line that you were talking about. And we can we, we don't have to talk any more national stuff here. But I tell people all the time who, who were obviously liberal, I go, you can't, you have to understand why someone voted for a populist message at that time in 2016 like his message was very appealing to so many people in this country and made sense he did not do any of that all the policies were the opposite of that and were incredibly unpopular you cannot make that same argument today they are being very clear with what is going to take place and it is all the things you just alluded to it is the taking away of personal freedom it's not limited government it's more government and it's more in your life so I, i just don't think you can make I think it's okay to excuse everyone in 2016, right? I think you can say whatever you want. You you you, you believe this. He told you that. I, I don't have any problem with that. I think understanding that perspective is important, but I don't think you can make that case in 2024. It's it's a challenge though because politics a lot is a lot about emotion, and so people will vote based upon how they feel. You know, I can tell you all I all I want about you know the macroeconomic trends that show the economy is improving. We didn't have a recession, but if you can't afford your groceries, yep, yep. you suddenly feel that the economy is terrible. And so this goes back to the garbage versus the the Titan Stadium situation. How do you feel at this given point? Um, one of the people who spoke to me at that garbage pickup at the trash uh, collection was saying that he was being priced out of his apartment, so he had to leave his community. Uh, because the rent had gotten too high, and again, that becomes a real issue. That's not government's fault. That's the market. But for him, it was, why hasn't anybody helped me? And you had a lot of that yeah. situation as well, you know, when it comes to whether, because it's interesting, there's been this like strange uh, change and transition when it comes to how Republicans act, how Democrats act. And growing up in Chicago was a very heavily Democratic city. And there was the, the myth that the dead people were voting. Uh, there was a the myth that, you know, aldermen, if you didn't vote for them, would not pick up your garbage. I mean, that may have been true in some cases for eh, some reason. Memphis. <laughs> Memphis had a few dead folks vote before. But 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 it's this whole notion that I saw what a hyper-partisan environment, and I didn't like it. I didn't yeah. like having this supermajority Democratic uh, administration there because when we come to progressive issues, I was a kid when Her- Mayor Harold Washington was elected. He was the first black mayor of Chicago, and he had this this racist cabal of fellow Democrats try to stymie him at every given moment. And, and I, I didn't understand it. You know, I was like, what, what, I don't know, I was a kid then, but I was, I was the super nerd yeah. who read the newspaper every single day, you know, <laughs> and was like, what, why is this happening? And then you realize that we're repeating history in many ways. So when we use terms like progressive, what does that exactly mean? You know, for me, are we a just city? Do we truly believe in inclusive prosperity where we can encourage, you know, we can't make businesses pay more, but what can we do to create greater wa- wage equity? Uh, and that's hard because equity has become a bad word now. DEI have become bad words. And, and I will say that I am the chair of our DEI task force at the Tennessean. But we have had 
um, groups of gun owners. We've had young American Muslims. We've had, um, you know, people. Uh, we we had the head of the the National Civil Rights Museum, Russ Wigington, come address our group just a couple months ago. And one thing that was interesting about that one was for him and for other museum curators, the they see a mission now that because divisive concepts laws have banned the way that Black history and other history is taught, they are now going to be the purveyors of that to provide that that programming, that history that children are not getting in the schools. If you haven't been to the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, it is such a moving place to go. They've got the lynching uh, memorial, and they also tell some of those truths. You talked about John Adams. You know, even though the slave trade, the, the international slave trade was banned in 1808, the domestic slave trade was still going on through the Civil War. And so you see that the, the amount of people who were affected, and you also see a, someone for me as, as a northerner, where we are don't have a good education is we, oh, it was the South's fault. You know, the South, that was where the problems were. They were the ones who had slavery. And then we're seeing that Northerners were financing all this stuff. <laughs> and like, you know, th- this is, this is a, a reality that we don't want to face. Martin Luther King walked in Chicago to uh, protest redlining. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Tom, Thomas Jefferson is viewed as one of the most important human beings in the history of our country. And Monticello is an incredibly complicated, racially divisive place. Well, look where we are, you know, Andrew Jackson's home, the Hermitage. Yeah. Uh, when I, started coming here. My, my mother and I, my husband and my, and my dad all went and my husband and my dad both did not like it because they said, this is such a depressing place. And this is like, this is a place where people were enslaved. My mom and I, the way that you know, we were raised and it was like, oh, this is history. And yeah, it was bad, but you know, I want to learn these stories and of, of, of people. And, Warts and, and all. It, it is yep. hard. Yep. And, 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 but you know, Look, people are going to look at us, you know, they're going to look at this, at, the, at, the, at this pod, oh, podcast show, pardon me, PBN, the and show, the say, show. what were they thinking? What were they thinking? You know, they're problematic. And, and, and that's the thing, our, our attitudes change, you know, our, our human, thoughts change. Human beings are super complicated. We, we hold conflicting ideas in our heads that don't make sense. We vote against our own best interests sometimes. Like, we just are very complicated. Our history is complicated. I find my love of the South is because we are so complicated because so much beauty and art and literature comes out of all of those complications in places like Macon, Georgia and Muscle Shoals, Alabama and Louisiana and the low country. Like I, that is part of my obsession with the South. And to your point, the stories need to be told here by these people down here. And so, uh, first of all, uh, thank you for, for coming in Absolutely. and for, for giving us so much time. You've been extremely gracious. Uh, Tennessee voices of course is the can I, can I call yours a podcast? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. Almost at 400 episodes now. There you go. Make sure you check out Tennessee Voices uh, at David Plazas on Twitter.com or the application X. Can't believe I just said that. I sound like a sociopath. Plus one. It sounds, <laughs> you sound like a sociopath when you say follow me on Twitter X. Twitter is dead. Twitter.com. It's it not. is now X. <laughs> it's still the URL. Uh, Ethan Roast, of course, is a wonderful, great partner of us and the sponsor here. So make sure you go check out their beans. Every grocery store in the area probably carries them. Make sure you check out the local section just in case if you don't find them in the coffee section. But their beans are more ethically sourced. Roasted here in Nashville, local company, four locations. You can also go pop in and probably see Jamie over at the Charlotte location uh, on any given day. He's over there in the morning doing stuff. And, of course, use that promo code PBNVUP to learn more about that history, David. Not you. You, you, you clearly already know it all. Um, you got but, a lot to learn. PBNVUP is the promo code VanderbiltUniversityPress.com for just our listeners. And, of course, you'll get 40% off all titles and free shipping from today all the way through the end of June. Uh, special thanks to a uh, friend of the show. Hey, look at there. Betsy Phillips. Words are important, I hear. Words matter. I hear words are important. Now, if we could just get our senator 
to to tell us what literally means. That would be great. David, well, David, tell the fairgrounds so goobers that shall means file a petition. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Braden. <laughs> thank you guys for hanging out, everybody. Thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe. If you give us four stars, you are a hater. That is right. Have a great week. <laughs>